Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year. Uh, welcome back to One Week, One Year. <laughs> <laughs> a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, uh, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week is 1919. I am one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. I feel like we both t- said our professions with much more confidence this time. Uh, yeah, because I spent uh, a number of months not being a projectionist uh, and just kind of floating around in the job sphere. My life has been chaos for the last, uh, I don't know, since like February or whatever. And so that's part of why this podcast has not been happening. And also I moved to a new place, but that had already sort of started happened already by the time that we recorded the last yeah. couple episodes. But here we are. I am are. once again a projectionist. I work at a nonprofit, cooler, better vibes theater now. Uh, and uh, and Glenn has come out with a badass movie that uh, is at film festivals and stuff. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your movie, Glenn. Uh, it's a horror movie. It's a monster movie about someone who gets lost in the woods and uh, starts finding weird objects and realizes they may not be alone. Nice elevator pitch. It's called It's called Through the Trees. It's called Through the Trees. Uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but um, it might be available through some festival or, or means possibly to watch online or in person at screenings who can say yeah but it's, it's been it's been very fun to, to like actually take it out and show it to people in movie theaters as yeah. like as part of a festival and and you came uh to visit here in denver for a little while and after hours we put it on in in my theater and had yeah a, had that a pretend was premiere that was the premiere and it was incredible it was super fun <laughs> Um, and then we watched The Mask of Zorro afterwards, which was also super fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to be back, Glenn. Thanks for it thanks is. for joining me again. I was just of thinking of like how much time, how much percent of my life that I have had this podcast, uh, and it's like somewhere between five and ten percent, which is a little freaky, you know. It's a little freaky th- of a thing to think about. Oof, yeah. Maybe a little less for you because you're a little older than me, but I don't know. What it, I, it's still still a while. Still a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you have any other any other things to talk about, Glenn? Not just a plug, but how you're doing? Um, I'm doing swell, you know. Just you know, doing things, living living life. Mhm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Things aren't things aren't terrible. <laughs> i agree things aren't terrible good that's that's genuinely good to hear yeah <laughs> as we have in the past and as we will in the future uh we like to bring a little extra context to what we're about to talk about glenn uh prepared a news segment for us which uh he probably wrote months and months ago as i've been <laughs> delaying on this for so long but glenn why don't you tell us about the news of the year from 1919? The news of the year, 1919. Boston is flooded by over 2 million gallons of molasses, killing 21 and injuring 150. 
The Treaty of Versailles is signed at the Paris Peace Conference, officially ending the Great War. The League of Nations is established. United Artists is founded by D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks, the first major artist-owned film company. The Grand Canyon is designated a national park. British authorities in Egypt arrest populist leader Saad Zaghloul, exiling him to Malta, triggering the Egyptian revolution against British occupation. Benito Mussolini founds his Italian fascist political movement in Milan. American baseball player Babe Ruth is traded by the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees for $125,000, the largest sum ever paid for a player. Oscar Michaud releases his first film, The Homesteader. And that is some of the news of the year. There were also a lot of wars and strikes and riots and such, as there are in the 1910s. Lots of riots, lots of strikes. We don't stand Benito Mussolini. That's that's not a good no, thing. No, no, no. This, this is not all good news. <laughs> we're not John Tr- Krasinski here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I try to go old politics, old, old sports. Yeah. Well, world history, that sort of thing. Yeah, good stuff. We are not covering The Homesteader on this episode because it is a lost film, unfortunately. It's lost, yes. But Oscar Michaud's first uh, surviving uh, film, uh, and Oscar Michaud being a black director who is uh, essentially like the first black feature director, so this will be the first feature film directed by a, a black man we will be talking about uh, on the next year. Yeah. For now, why don't we get into One Week, One Reel? Talk about a couple short films. Ah, one Week, One Reel. Um, yeah, not not a lot of shorts to cover, or not a lot of shorts that we did cover, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but two that I think are notable. Yeah. Noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first being uh, <laughs> Feline Follies, which is an animated short and is most notable for being the first appearance of Felix the Cat, famed early Felix animation Cat. character. Even though, so that's like what I had read about it, but he's not actually called Felix mm-hmm. the Cat in this short. No, Master yeah. Tom. So it does it. I mean, it's like it's the same character design, but I don't, I don't know if it really counts. I don't know. In st- but well, I mean, in Steamboat Willie, he's called Steamboat Willie, and not there you Mickey go. Mouse, same you know? principle though. They had like, flexible names. Yeah. Flexible names. Uh, yeah, this is a an animator or animation studio that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, Pat Sullivan and the Pat Sullivan Studio. Um, based out of New York City. And there's, I guess there's some kind of debate over who, is that even in my notes or am I making this up? Over like who came up with Felix the Cat, whether it was uh, Otto Messmer or, Otto Messmer being the, the lead animator at the studio. He uh, he claimed to be the sole anim- the sole creator of Felix the Cat, but that's sort of been disputed, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we have to, we should, we should definitely make a, a deliberate effort to get more animation in our, in our lives in this, uh, in this show, because I love cartoons, and, uh, I, I'm excited to be able to cover them, uh, and this one was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I thought, like, it's, it's rough in a way, it's, like, really limited animation, but it's, like, super expressive, like, what is there, 
and it's also just weirdly it dark. It really is. There's parts of this where I like wasn't even sure like what I was looking at. I'm like, no way that it can be intended to be what I think is happening. <laughs> I mean, this really goes to show that like animation wasn't thought of as a thing for children. No, uh, and I point. feel like a lot of what we've watched um, supports like a lot of what we've watched has been like yeah, very very dark or or sort of yeah certainly if you talk about like the sinking right, of the lusitania yeah. yeah um but yeah i feel like even the kind of more comedic stuff doesn't really feel like it's intended for children yeah i we're burying the lead a little bit and I be, it's because the lead hap- is at the end of the short but i feel like we should just say that what we're talking about is that this short ends with felix the cat beloved cartoon character uh, sucking on a leaking gas pipe to kill himself. <laughs> Even just saying that sentence out loud is so it's so absurdly dark that it is just comedic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's what it's going for. I'm sure you know. It did kind of remind me of like later animated shorts like Looney Tunes or Tom and Jerry. Kind of more so mm-hmm. than a lot of the stuff that we've watched so far, like the Windsor McKay shorts. Yeah, it's definitely more in that kind of like cartoon comedy slapsticky kind of kind of realm than uh yeah this kind of like i don't know prestige sort of thing that windsor mckay is yeah. trying to go for it's weirdly it's weird to say about something that is so kind of you know simplistic but it it's more plotty than those like it's it's more about actually kind of telling a little story rather than just being kind of like the windsor mckay stuff is very much being like look at this cool new thing animation <laughs> look at how hard i worked on it yeah look at how many drawings i did we're gonna make sure you know that <laughs> these are a lot of drawings <laughs> the um the the basic plot of this short is that felix the cat who's called master tom uh lives in or, or he he mm-hmm. meets what well there's a a town name in this that i found very funny oh uh i didn't note it what is it <laughs> It's Pussyville. <laughs> I I um I can't believe I almost went by that. Yeah, uh, Master Tom of Pussyville. Uh, <laughs> goes, uh, he he uh, meets a, a lady cat and serenades her, and then they go to the quote trysting place, uh, and then you know it cuts to some other scene. Some mice do some stuff and dance around, and then. Felix you know, cuts back to Felix a while later. He uh, wakes up and, or, or he's he's run out of, a, of the house that he's in because the mice are partying and he's supposed to catch them. And then he sees his lady cat uh, sitting in a puddle of blood on the ground, and she like looks over the side and then reveals that she's given birth to a dozen little baby Felixes. And then he runs away and tries to kill himself. <laughs> In, as opposed to fatherhood, which was his yes. alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our, our, our deadbeat dad uh, protagonist. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that I thought was cool about this movie, uh, when you compare it to like other silent films, and this being like a cartoon, it, it makes uh, a lot more like formal sense to do this, is that they use speech bubbles instead of title cards so yeah. that they don't have to interrupt the action. Super cool. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it's because it's pre, I guess, pre-sync sound being a very common thing. 
it does it makes a lot of sense and this is also like pre like i think comic strips existed as like a newspaper thing or like printed mm-hmm. things but it's like it's kind of pre comic books also but it's it's cool to see that kind of uh like visual language being established across both at like around the same time yeah from from the like comic strips that i've seen from this era it seems like this is definitely and this this and a lot of other animation that's not uh mckay maybe it's inheriting a lot of uh like visual styling and formal stuff like from comic books as it's or comic strips i suppose like as um it's developing like what animation is in itself, which is maybe why it's like a little more herky jerky than Mm -hmm. um, something where it's like necessary. Like it's getting the comedy out of like poses rather than motions maybe uh, because the expressive aspects of animation are still being explored. I would say that's still kind of a, a thing in animation of having like really strong poses, right? Cause you, it's like setting keyframes, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. So I think that's like I don't know. Yeah, it's it's cool to see it develop in the way where it's it's so rudimentary now, but you can really see the places where they're starting to learn where they can kind of uh, be more expressive with it. Or yeah, yeah. Uh, and like one other kind of like fun like formal thing that I noticed in this is that uh, while he's like serenading the lady cat. Uh, the music notes appear in the air and then they like grab them out of the air, sit on them and then they turn into cars and they drive away, which is like a very like, it's like a very cartoony thing to do, but it's like wild that they're already like thinking that like abstractly about what they're looking at, you know, that they can make this kind of joke. Yeah. It's, it's establishing almost like cartoon logic. Yeah. Yeah. Which is definitely a thing. And is, I think one of the things that kind of reminded me of, yeah, like Looney Tunes of that sort of yeah. You throw a it's like duck a muck almost. Yeah, throw yeah. a throw a, a hole up in the wall and then jump through it. Like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this was fun. I went to see Looney Tunes at the Symphony uh, a week or so ago, and Ooh, I wore a suit. Fancy. Um, and everybody <laughs> thought I was a little overdressed because I was wearing a suit. I kind of weirdly did not expect the whole like symphony orchestra to be overrun with children but that's that's what it was it was like a bunch of like seven-year-olds and me in a suit you were expecting like a very austere sort of like we're going to the symphony to watch merry moodles and (laughs) merry melodies excuse me (laughs) um in some way or at least a bunch of like like hipster assholes like me you know right yeah I I have a ticket to see uh, Jurassic Park at the New York Philharmonic next month, and uh, yeah, we'll see we'll see what the crowd is like there. It will it'll be dinosaurs, probably. Yeah, that's that's what I'm expecting. That's funny, In right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke, right? <laughs> um, the other short film, unless you had something else on this, uh, the other short film that we looked at. It's kind of just like um, it's less of a sh- it's less of a short film and more to more just of like, like a concept. <laughs> yes, it's a concept that is kind of uh, I don't know, exemplified by. I mean, there's a couple different ones. Like there's, I tried to find 
the most kind of core original like version of it that I could. It was unclear to me on what what was that and like when it was from exactly. You you put this yeah. on here and I'm trusting your uh, your research on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean it's it's like a lot of things from early film history. It's very hard to pin down specifics on things because sometimes people don't even know and there's so much misinformation. But uh, the the short in question, um, if we can call it a short, is uh, the Kuleshov effect. Which, yeah, is more of a concept than, like, the title of the short, really. Mm-hmm. But it is the film shot and edited together by Lev Kuleshov to show uh, this sort of editing effect. Or the, the the way in which... How do you even describe this? The way in which, like, a, uh, the human mind, like, processes film editing, almost. Right. Uh, in particular, kind of like the idea of like a reaction shot and imparting, uh, imparting the emotion of a face that you're seeing onto the next or previous shot as, as an implication of what they're looking at. Yes. So like a neutral shot of, uh, I believe one of them that I found like the most kind of famous version of it is a sort of neutral ish looking face um and then a shot of soup and then a shot of the face and then a shot of a dead child and then a shot of the face and then a shot of a pretty lady and then a shot of the face the face being uh like a middle-aged man um and each time you see the face it it you impart your brain kind of imparts some meaning onto that person's expression based on the previous image, because it's like, you see a shot of soup cut to the guy's face. He looks hungry. Like shot of a dead child. He looks sad. Like shot of pretty lady. He looks kind of like lecherous. Um, And the key is that it's like the same face every time. And so like with that new context, you're like seeing the face in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, you're sort of imparting meaning on that face based on how it's juxtaposed with the images before or after it, which is, yeah, is like an essential piece of kind of modern cinematic language. Um, and this is, I this is not, certainly not the first time anyone has ever, like, done that through editing at this point. Like, that's mm-hmm. already been an established thing, but I think what Lev Kuleshov did was sort of like, break it down and really kind of analyze it and sort of uh, synthesize it down into its most, into its most basic form as Mm -hmm. a way of showing it to people and how, how that works. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to like assume that there is not like a lot of thought being put into uh, editing so far. uh, Cause there certainly is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that like, like this is this is representing uh somebody trying to make some kind of like really deliberate thoughts into like the nature of the art of film editing and the film itself and like how those things work together uh kuleshov was the founder of the first film school uh yeah. the moscow film school uh in this year uh 1919 um and so he was 
literally like studying film. He was trying to like develop the medium by uh, make doing these kinds of experiments where I think that maybe a lot of the other stuff was more like, I'm telling a story. How do I tell the story? And this is like, how do I break down these ideas uh, in, in a way that can be utilized to tell stories? Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's a clever guy, that Kuleshov. He knew what he was talking about. Like, an example of this sort of effect happening is, I, I'm sure you've seen this, the, the animated gif or gif of Rose from Titanic spinning, and then it cuts to Cone the Barbarian spinning with his arms out. So it looks like <laughs> she's spinning him, like, by his legs. Um, um, I'm not sure I've seen that. but It's, uh... it's incredible because it, it's com- two completely separate image, like shots from different movies shot in different uh-huh. decades with totally different intents behind them. But you put them together and they tell a story <laughs> together perfectly. And if, if you're watching the YouTube version, we'll uh, put that gif up. I still don't know what it looks like, but um, you will. <laughs> yes, it looks very funny. I think Lev Kuleshov's work is kind of a, a big forebearer, I guess, to, like, Eisenstein's later work. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing with, like, Soviet montage theory and all that. We'll get to that. We'll get to it. Um, that's that's where your film school degree is really going to help us out. By having watched uh, uh, Battleship Potemkin? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somebody talked to you about Eisenstein and montage. No, for sure. Blah, 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 for blah, sure. Blah, blah, you know? uh, I don't remember the nitty-gritty of it as well as I probably should. Um, yeah, as, as an editor myself, uh, I think about this stuff a lot. And I think it's this very simple idea of, like... The meaning is less about the individual images and more about how they're juxtaposed together Mm, is, like, mm -hmm. such an important piece of what cinematic storytelling is. It makes me think of the concept in that, like, Scott McCloud introduced in Understanding Comics, uh, saying that the... um, the like kind of essential nature of comics of the medium of comics uh he argued was not like the panel or the drawing but um the space between two panels mm-hmm. yeah. uh where it is showing it is creating a juxtaposition it's creating motion it's creating a relationship between things um in the same way that you could think of the fundamental language of film as the edit uh he was making that um argument for comic books and and they're therefore shading family circus for not having more than one panel ever his his real goal um yeah i don't know i'm i'm a big nerd and i like thinking and talking about this stuff so i'm glad we were able to kind of have a little a little segment on this do you find yourself like deliberately thinking about the relationship between multiple shots when you're editing? Absolutely. All the time. Hmm. Um, and I think it can lead sometimes to like unintended things where it's like, Oh, I just have like a shot of this person. Like, and then this other shot of this person looking over here and it's like, Oh wait, because these are back to back, it's creating a different meaning that I didn't intend. Hmm. Um, or sometimes you can take two shots that were not intended to go back to back that then work in a way that I really want to get this idea across. I really want this thing to kind of play in a certain way. And you can reorder things in a way that when they're put in a certain order, it creates a different meaning or it sort of puts different images in the audience's head. Um, 
Yeah. So like Lev Kuleshov invented manipulative uh, reality show editing. I mean, in in so much as he like uh, like stitching different reactions. Right. Together. I mean, it's that's yeah. I mean, that is the Kuleshov effect, right? So yeah, sure. Blame it on him. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we head on to our feature presentation? Indeed. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. I don't know. You want to start with a with a good one? They they were all pretty good. I thought. Well, yeah. I don't know. There's uh, one that I'm I'm gonna rag on. Maybe we should start with that one because it's also probably the most famous movie from this year. Uh, I'm interested to see what you pick here. Okay. I was talking about Broken Blossoms. By, oh, okay. By D.W. Griffith. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Okay, I'm in, I'm interested to see what you hear you, what you say about it because I feel like for a DW movie, if you like, you know, it, <laughs> for for a DW movie, I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of nice. <laughs> I mean, no, it is uh, it is certainly less of a blatantly evil piece of art than some of his <laughs> other movies, but it's also it's just like I don't know the DW of it all is really. Even the stuff he does well is starting to annoy me sometimes now, <laughs> because he, he he knows what he likes and he can tends to stick to a lot of sort of core uh, ideas and character archetypes and things like that in his movies. For sure, and it's, for sure, it's starting to be a, get a little old. I mean, that's the thing with him is that he just loves a very specific type of drama, mm-hmm. um, and like he loves to be grim and dark and gritty. Uh, yeah. because that's what he trades in for you know maturity <laughs> yes yes um yeah i think this is probably probably the most famous movie from this year i'm guessing this is um oh how do i say this <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh so this movie's called broken blossoms which is a better title than the oh, original yes. title um <laughs> I don't know if this is one of those slurs that, like, you can, <laughs> that, like, you can say in, like, a pulled back kind of academic way, or if you just don't anyway. <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's, it's so absurd and blunt that it's also, like, I don't know, I'm a white person, I can't, I can't really speak to how offensive it is. But it's, like, cartoonishly well, offensive in such an old-timey way. Yes. So it was it was a book, forgive me listeners. It was a book called The Chink and the Child that it was suggested to DW Griffith to adapt this movie by Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Um they read the book and they thought that this is DW material which it <laughs> is. Uh, <laughs> especially with that title. The basic plot is there's a a man from china who he's like a buddhist i guess who and he yeah. wants to see he he holds a great dream to take the glorious method message of peace to the bar the barbarous anglo-saxons sons of turmoil and strife that's uh, dw being like see white people can be bad too you know what it is that like it's it's interesting because you know the movie kind of makes this sort of like noble savage kind of argument yeah. for um, for the peaceful, uh, as he's called, yellow man, you know. Jeez. It's um, like, this is, 
D.W. Griffiths being super racist is not a hot take, but, like, yikes. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so, like, there's, like, this sort of, like, indictment of, like, the, the bar- barbariousness of white people, um, but also, like, you know, of course he loves white people. It's, it's interesting to me that, like, he shares this with, like, say common like like common day uh ethno nationalists in their kind of love of asians you know um Mm. like i feel like like a lot of uh white supremacists these days like are uh they're like supportive of of things like japan uh which are like they consider to be these like functional ethno states or whatever um and of course they all like fetishize like asian people um so it's interesting to see like racists now and a hundred years ago, both kind of have like a, yeah. a an Asian fixation. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> right. He has this kind of noble savage idea, I think about native Americans and about, uh, mm, that's and about, right. Um, and about Asia and also, yeah, just his, his whole idea of like what innocence is and how it should be represented and things like that. I'm just like, there's just it's so yeah. it's so naughty and so weird um so and there's well, a, there's a lot of that in this movie this is very much a sort of like moralistic tale mm-hmm. right so like he stands as this like person who is like this moral kind of beacon in a way and yeah. then and he, he is he, he is sales played to... by a white actor in in uh makeup that is true because D.W. Griffith cannot have any uh, main character person of color yeah. be played by a person of color, only background characters. There are a lot of Asian uh, actors in this movie, just yeah. only in the background. I was actually surprised, like these scenes in the beginning uh, that are set in China, like they look like really good. You know, they're really like like deep scenes with a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. like a lot of like lavish sets. Like you know, he does that. Be- he's done that before, uh, and like a lot of maybe stereotypical but like closely identified like visual iconography of like asia right but apparently it was all i i was thinking like is this shot on location but it was not it was all on a stage mm. it was shot in 18 days actually um, Dang. anyway keep getting distracted basically he goes to london uh and it like flashes forward a couple years and he goes from this like optimistic guy who's trying to like teach people to be nice to just this like beaten down and sad shopkeeper in like a, a crummy London district. And uh, it says that, uh, the, quote, the yellow man's youthful dreams come to wreck against the sordid realities of life. And he spends time in an opium den and all that kind of thing. I Another thing that, is is less overtly terrible about D.W. Griffith's movies that I I still dislike is how overwritten his intertitles are. <laughs> like, I'm sure I, he it wrote them all. Me. <laughs> I'm sure he wrote them all himself, and they're all just so melodramatic and so, like, every single one is just, like, loaded with portent. But it's like, they're not really well-written a lot of the time. They're just very <laughs> dramatic. I mean, he wants to be taken seriously. Like in he demands Birth it, of a yeah. Nation Intolerance, we demand to be taken seriously. Yeah. Oh, ah. That's that's oh. what every single one of his movies sounds like to me. 
but yeah, Intolerance of Birth of a Nation, like his his he had like paragraph markers on his yeah. title cards, you yeah. know? Like he's like, I'm like a book, I'm serious, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There there is I, I also agree that I think a lot of the like staging of this movie is very impressive. That the set work, the um I don't I think some of it might have been shot on locate like in the United States, but on locations like on you know on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Down uh, by the yeah. docks, that sort of right, thing. I suppose so. Um, there are some like miniatures to represent like wide shots of London streets, mm, I believe. Yeah. So we're we're also introduced to Lynn Gish playing the girl or Lucy. He loves to do that. He he loves to <laughs> <laughs> He loves um, to call people like the yellow man, the girl, yeah. the uh what um, was the other one? The spying one. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Oh, yeah. Also, there is... Um, I don't have the full quotation here, but there's a bit where it's... Uh, I believe it is... What's the lead character's name? Uh, Cheng Huan? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, so he's... Yeah, he's always referred to as the yellow man. But uh, I'm not going to call him that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in... You can see the name of his shop, like, the, yeah. who it's owned by. And, it, yeah, it is Chen, Chen so Huan. It is, like, he has a name in the film they just never <laughs> refer to him by that um no. but there's there's because we're racist over here there's a bit where he's quoting uh buddha in english in the intertitles and and it says thou and i have written down no way did buddha ever say thou <laughs> but so anyway uh Lillian gish as the girl slash lucy her actual name she has a drunk abusive father figure which is a big stock 1910s uh, silent movie character yeah yeah um and uh she is told not to get his married name, his name is battling burrows yes uh they 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 both have like kind of cockney accents in the title cards yes. which is entertaining yeah. <laughs> um but she is told not to get married and not to be a prostitute which are her only options apparently <laughs> i do think Lillian gish is very is like is good in this movie i think she does good good eye acting yeah for sure um she might actually be the only really good performance in this movie i think a lot of the other actors in it are doing some some kind of wild silent movie acting that maybe doesn't work as well but um, yeah the, the the uh the guy who played battling burrows he was also a director um and they had to shoot all of his scenes at night uh because he was directing another <laughs> movie during the day um, but maybe maybe a better director than actor. I don't know. He did maybe. definitely overact. Uh, and then the main character, you can't see his acting under all that yellow face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he does a lot of, you know, weird walks and, like, holding his arms in his sleeves and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I don't know, my, my notes get a little vague here, and I watched this movie, like, six months ago. So... <laughs> uh well so basically like you know he it calls it calls battling burrows an abysmal brute and uh she and and it says that um uh that lucy is used as a punching bag to relieve his feelings which is really awful um and um one kind of like really like like messed up motif in this movie is that uh, even as, like, as or after he is, like, you know, physically abusing her, um, 
he he's like why aren't you smiling you should be smiling you know you got to smile uh and she and, and so and it says she never has any reason to smile and so when he tells her that she kind of like turns to the side and then forces her her lips into a smile uh in this really just disturbing way uh and so then, real, like a holds... real joker moment <laughs> um I would actually and, say it works better in this movie than in that movie, but continue. Are you talking about the Joaquin Joker? Yes. Okay, I didn't see that movie. Um, I, I don't. I, I think I've seen uh, the kind of image that you're you're talking about that one, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, it's it's a pretty disturbing image. Uh, apparently it was um, uh, it was Lillian Gish's idea uh, that that motif, um, mm. and then DW went with it. He's like, great, very on the nose. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and basically, like, what ends up happening is that uh, Chen Huan and Lucy uh, end up kind of, you know, being kind of friendly with each other. He kind of uh, starts, like, like kind of dreamily looking at her through his shop window. Um, and eventually, like, he... Um, Chen Huan like kind of rescues her from being kind of kicked out in this like fairly abusive situation and he takes her in uh and kind of heals her for a while uh the battling burrows is a boxer um and he uh like as he's preparing for a match he hears that um his missing daughter who he generally doesn't care very much about, but, you know, cares about her as a piece of property. Um, uh, he hears that, that this guy, Chen Huan, is, like, is like keep hold, taking care of her, basically. Um, and so he plots to uh, basically just come to Chen Huan's place and mess him up. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to mess that guy up, ain't it? <laughs> One one other thing is this kind of, like, irony uh, that happens in the movie, like, in the middle of the movie, where uh, Chen is, like, runs into some Christian missionaries who are going to China to convert the heathens. And it's this kind of like, oh, oh you know, like, like you could, you're ones to talk, you know. And they, they hand him a book that just says hell on it. <laughs> <laughs> Great moment. Can I can I get that book anywhere? <laughs> the hell book. There are some cool kind of um, use of like matting on the edge of the frame to like make different shapes of the frame, mm-hmm. um, uh, like like really narrow vertical things or really really narrow like horizontal, you know, uh, all sorts of things going on, like adjusting the shape of the frame, which. I feel like it's more often done with, like, circles, like a vignette, than, yeah. like, just, like, I'm, hard borders. I noticed that a lot from films this year, specifically, like... Yeah, yeah. That's uh, not an uncommon technique, I guess, at this time, and it's it's not something you really see anymore, hardly ever. Um, but it's really interesting, and it really, like, yeah. breaks breaks things up. You know, Make different like... frame shapes, you know? Yeah. Samurai Jack did it. Mm. Um, um, miss that show. <laughs> uh and basically like um i don't know it ends in a sad way like every dw yes. movie ends. it is as stated a tale of love a tale of tears 
Um, he, um, as he's taking care of her, he, uh, he, it says he watched Lucy and saw her beauty. The spirit of beauty breaks her blossoms all across her chamber. Um, uh, um, and, uh, yeah. And then, you know, the dad gets mad that he, uh, that he is taking care of his daughter. Uh, there's like some fighting back and forth. Um, and you know, she dies in the process. Uh, actually she's like trying to like, she's like recaptured by battling. What's his name? Battling Burroughs. And then he like kills her while he's like trying to punish her. Basically Chen Huan finds out. And then in his final like corruption by the West, uh, he grabs a gun, uh, kills battling Burroughs and then dies. That's the movie. There is there is a uh, a sort of classic DW scene of like woman behind hiding behind a door bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, felt very reminiscent of or like a precursor to The Shining. Just like the actual sort of like framing of it. Um, to the point where I was like, did Cooper look at this movie at all? <laughs> Like, it's very similar of just, like, yeah. breaking the door down kind of thing and, like, the, the hole in the door, that kind of stuff. And, like, speaking of, like, DW motifs, like, this is something that he does a lot. This is uh, something he does since... oh, pretty much every movie is, like, a woman hiding <laughs> in a room while someone's trying to break in. And, and then, like, usually, maybe someone will rescue her in time. Usually there's they're inter- he's intercutting with someone who's, like, racing to get there. Yeah, I mean that was the entire movie of was it the Lonedale operator. Yes, that's um, right. Is that um, uh, all based on that Grand Guignol bit? Right. Um, but the sort of the the, the specific staging of of this one uh, is very Shining E. Mm-hmm. Um, some some BTS behind the scenes stuff that I learned reading about this. I think all be- behind the scenes facts about these movies should be taken a little bit with a grain of salt. Um, although some of these I, I found from an actual, like, interview with Lillian Gish. Um, one is that she got influenza during the rehearsals for the movie. hmm You know, during the, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I think this was shot either late 1918 or early 1919. Um, she talks about how, like, everyone had to wear a mask on set. Um, just very common things now that yeah. every film set does. Um, and five people from the studio died like during the making of this movie. I don't know if it was like directly related, but yeah. that was like something that Lillian Gish said in uh, in an interview. Um, we'll probably get into this more with another one of the movies, but I, this nineteen nineteen is pretty much the only time, or like the only time I've come across any real direct references on screen or off screen about how the the influenza pandemic affected filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it seems is, like they tried to ignore it a bunch. Yeah. Like they seem seemingly com- almost completely ignored it. Um, unlike, uh, COVID, which is now they're like making whole shows just about that. I'm like, stop it. <laughs> I, I don't need it. <laughs> We're done. We don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, that's that movie. Yeah. Uh, 
do you want to stay in America or go across the Atlantic? Uh, I guess we'll stay in America for now. All that right. seems like a good uh, <laughs> segue. So well, speaking <laughs> speaking of uh, of uh, young young girls that DW uh, had as as his uh, protagonists go. at times. Speaking of um, just weird old timey stuff. Yeah, a lot uh, of that in this one. <laughs> I know where you're going. Let's, let's talk about Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weird title. Didn't know what it was going to refer to. I mostly is it a spider it. movie? Could be. Um, so yeah, this Sorry, is a... an arachnid movie. Spiders are arachnids. But are Daddy Long Legs spiders? Yes, I think because they, they have fewer, they have no, fewer they, legs, right? No, they have eight legs. They just fall off a lot. Seriously? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah, you'll often see them walking around with seven legs, but... <laughs> Poor Daddy. Yeah. Um... No, there's a lot of that in this movie. Uh, this is directed by Marshall <laughs> Nealon, um, who's not a name that I'm super familiar with, but he did he did a bunch of movies in the 1910s. Yeah, he also um, played one of the principal characters in this. True, true. Um, and it stars Mary Pickford. I mean, movie star extraordinaire. Yes, in founder the, in of United Artists. Yeah, she along, is, along with D.W. She's 27 years old playing, like, a little child in this movie. Well, as playing she multiple ages. Yeah. She plays, yeah, yeah she plays, like, a, like an 11-year-old child and then, like, a, I don't know, like, okay. closer to her actual age, but probably still skewing younger. Yeah. Um, yeah, does that a lot. Uh, I think this is probably, this is a good example of that, for sure. Um, but uh, we start with the... Uh, a bunch like a bunch of crossfades showing uh two babies being born one into wealth one into poverty um and we kind of start by following uh jerusha or judy who's played by mary pickford and immediately we get into the the owner of the orphanage uh also uh got their wealth through convict labor and it sort of compares convict laboring to the orphanage and like crossfading between like working on the railroad and all the children kind of based kind of based <laughs> um and immediately i was like oh man this movie isn't messing around um <laughs> this is primarily a comedy but there are moments where it gets like real serious oh yeah there i i wrote down a bunch of jokes about mary pickford playing a child and how it's sort of uh, a Pen15 situation. Uh, the Hulu show, Pen15, being mm, mm-hmm. adult actors playing children. Um, also, get some what's rest. A, what's another joke? Get some yeah. rest, tall child. <laughs> I always like making jokes by saying, by prefacing it as, I wrote a joke down. Here it is. <laughs> um, but sh- so she wants to unionize with the other orphans. Oh my god, it's so good. It's um, so funny. She gets detention for refusing to eat prunes and telling the other orphans not to. Yeah, she says, the life of us orphans is one darn prune after another. And then a comrade says, us boys is with you. Starvation <laughs> until we croak. <laughs> and so they go on a prune strike, which it literally 
says prune strike on one of the title cards yeah. and there is a big like california raisin ass prune in the background <laughs> with eyes and a mouth <laughs> oh yeah all the intertitles in this have like pictures or a lot of them do um mm-hmm. it's seeming to become like, like more like common paintings these yeah. days like to have like bespoke pictures for yeah. for title cards which i love is fun. That. yeah yeah i think it's great um uh so her and another kid get set sent to sit outside um and start praying for some food just as a man walks by and throws some some sandwiches and booze over the wall into their <laughs> orphanage and so the kids drink the booze and suddenly the the buildings start like swaying or rocking back and forth which is a cool a cool uh effect yeah like a full 50 percent of this movie is kind of like orphanage hijinks um yeah and like after they get drunk like she starts like uh you know they kind of they go back inside because they're afraid the buildings are gonna fall on top of them and uh they like she starts like sliding on banisters and (laughs) she uh she slides on the banisters uh, like three banisters and then her butt catches on fire <laughs> as that's that's that'll happen as kids. you do yeah. like and like there's a little kid like you know who is an actual child and not mary pickford uh doing some like pretty solid right. like chaplin-esque the, physical comedy when he's drunk you know all the other children are much like ben 15 played by actual children and it's just <laughs> this weird adult woman walking around being like i'm a little i'm a little child she sells it okay. I she, think she no, sells she, it okay. She sells it okay. She does a, a good job. Um, but it's it's just one of those bizarre sort of old-timey movie things. Um, that, I mean, it does still happen. Like, uh, Little Women has a bunch of adult actors playing children. And then aging them up to play, like, their own ages. And it's... it's and still it's kind so of, confusing. I can't tell uh, which timeline is if, which. If only they shot it in two completely different <laughs> color palettes like they did. Um, anyway, it works better in that movie than it does here. Um, uh, so Judy eventually meets her sort of her wealthy counterpart, the other baby that we saw at the beginning. Uh, her name is Angie. And she says, if you're a lady, I'm glad my mother was an ash can. <laughs> That's a that's a great line. That's a that's a solid burn. Um, yeah, because Angie she was is, she was found in a in a trash bin. Yeah, specifically. Um, Angie is uh, a, a spoiled child, being rich, um, and uh, Mary Pickford wants to play with her doll, but Angie says she's sick and will get germs on my doll. Um, I don't know if that's an explicit reference to the pandemic. I don't think it is. Oh um, yeah, that, come, there is that a, comes later. There, there's a child in. There's like a nice little little kid in the orphanage who is like on the brink of death, and like you know, Judy wants to share the doll with her. Um, and yeah, there there are hijinks involving um, Mary Pickford's Judy trying to steal the doll back from uh, from the rich girl, <laughs> uh, and. She, like, slices its arm off while she's not looking, and she's, like, <laughs> holding the arm and just takes the rest of the doll. Um, but then, like, the moment that this gets so heavy is, like, the the kid, um, you know, she's tending to this child. It's, it's, very, it's very sweet. And then it's, like, the kid is literally on the brink of death. And so she's holding this sick child in her arms, and 
the child says, I want my mama. And then the title card says that her mother reaches out from the darkness and, and she joins her mother, you know, and then it cuts back and then the kid is dead in her arms. It's so heavy. It's, yeah. it's, it's sad, honestly, but I don't know how it like, like, like ping pong from like, like yeah. people's butts catching on fire to this so quickly. <laughs> um, I think it, it mostly sells it. Like it didn't. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's pretty well like th- those two kind of tones i think it actually does sort of uh use them pretty effectively um and then it's it's right after that but they get the sort of time jump right uh basically uh yeah i guess so it's a little hard to tell when she's pretending to be a child the right. whole time um, uh <laughs> but yeah right because she looks the same it's sort of like yeah. time jump she's older now she looks identical <laughs> She's older, she's still at the orphanage, but a, a mysterious benefactor uh, offers to pay for her to go to college. And she, like, sees, like, a, a silhouette of this mysterious figure. He wants to stay anonymous, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and names him Daddy Longlegs. I guess because he has long legs and because he is presumably uh, uh, paternal. Some kind um, of sugar daddy. It's a sugar daddy movie. The amount of times that the, the word daddy is banded about in this film was a little uncomfortable. And it's it's here where she, she leaves to go to college and when she goes to the train station, there is the the single sort of like known reference in a film from this time period to the ongoing pandemic, which is she goes to the train station, everyone's wearing masks and she sneezes and they all run away like for fear <laughs> of catching uh, presumably influenza. Um... And that's it. It's like a single shot. That's like the only time in like any surviving movie that there's like a real director. They don't want that heaviness. Yeah, it's true. Better just to show children dying from disease. (laughs) Oh, and then we get a wild scene. We cut away to the offices of Dan Cupid, Unlimited (laughs) World Dominion. Unlimited being like un-LTD. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of Cupid babies uh, sort of conspiring to make Judy fall in love with someone. But it's like this weird, like, Coen Brothers-y. It's like, the, it's like a company. It's very <laughs> weird. Um, yeah. But all, yeah, all they're the Cupids in like a... are in, like, an office somewhere. <laughs> yes. They're all babies with wings strapped to them. Yeah. Uh... All the little boss babies. <laughs> and, like, one of them, like, like... There are kind of a couple of potential suitors set up uh, at her college. Yes. One is um, a young, a younger man who is uh, not interested in ladies most of the time. Is that is that Jimmy McBride? Uh, I think that was his name. I didn't note down his name. Well, uh, that's I noted, the one that's noted, played by the director. I noted down that one of them is named Jimmy McBride, and he is introduced by a. A, uh, an intertitle that says Jimmy McBride, a Princeton freshman who just hates himself. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of really funny title cards in this. Like, I was yeah. laughing a lot at this movie. It is, it is quite funny. Yeah. Um, one thing, if we like go back to the beginning a little bit, was that um, while they were introducing like the kind of headmistress or whatever of the uh, of the the orphanage, they're making all of these like comparisons of people to like 
like oh like this person it like dissolve like introduce this person it dissolves to a flower it's like the kind of flower they are and then it says um she can only be like as as it's describing this this lady yeah. she can only be described as this kind of posy and then it just ter- fades to cactus <laughs> <laughs> um hilarious well then and then it calls her a stinkweed yes uh, our sincerest apologies a stinkweed yeah <laughs> they're like ooh, sincerest apologies for calling someone a stinkweed <laughs> um and the other suitor is uh a kind of silver fox in fact they say what's foxy grandpa doing here <laughs> i wrote that down i was like foxy grandpa's coming back is that just a term that was a thing I in the 1910s maybe it was a reference to the comic strip somehow i don't maybe. know you, you could it's very possible foxy grandpa the return of foxy <laughs> grandpa <laughs> oh my god oh so so cupid i guess like one of the cupid babies kind of messes up and then accidentally like makes both of them fall in love with her um and then the cupid boss baby says You've probably started another one of those darn triangle things that will end in divorce court. <laughs> one of those darn triangle things. It's like hanging a lampshade on it, I guess. It is, yeah. But it's it's not uh yeah, I actually I I thought that line was pretty funny. And yeah, we sort of get some of this sort of rom com hijinks going on. Mm-hmm. Um, with this darn triangle thing. Judy wants to be a writer, she's writing a book she's uh she's writing letters to her her benefactor that we see we kind of see him like from behind sitting in a chair reading all the letters mm. daddy yes we see daddy we see, reading we, her we letters we see the daddy correct um but judy's her first book gets rejected because she doesn't know enough about the world um but then her second book makes her rich and famous like easy peasy mm-hmm uh, but no While one comes... she's a college student. Yeah. no, Nobody comes to her graduation, though. As part of the arrangement for paying for her college, her mysterious benefactor daddy um, requests that he... <laughs> requests that he uh, uh, receive a letter once a month from her, uh, updating her on... Uh, updating him on her... Um, you know, progress in college. And he doesn't ever write back. And so... But she asked him, like... Daddy, please, Daddy, come come to my, uh, what's the Daddy, Daddy, come over now, save my life. You made a vow. Oh, I'll cut, I'll cut that out. That's a Nathan for you. But um, wait, is it? Oh yes, 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 yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he doesn't show up, and she's sad about it. She sends him like a thousand dollar check to repay, uh, his his kindness. Uh, now that she's rich and famous from being an author about horrible orphanages. Indeed. And uh, some other things happen. Yeah, and, there's some, uh, like, backs and forth with, like, the two guys. Uh, but, like, she kind of starts, like, falling for this silver fox who's well, a little, who's, who's a lot older than her. He, She does, but at the same time, she tells him, I think of you more like a grandmother, which is also yeah. a, a pretty sick burn. His feelings are hurt, and then yes. he doesn't talk to her for a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so uh, uh, this silver fox, this foxy grandpa, as it were, uh, his name is Jarvis, and he professes his love to her, but she 
kind of uh, gives him a look and and runs away because she is worried about like the class imbalance, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more so than the age imbalance. Although that there's they yeah. do acknowledge that they are like this is a little weird. Like they do at least <laughs> they do at least acknowledge that like no they are very different ages. Um, but she's like constantly being confronted by this class stuff by like. You know, students at the school that know more, know about, you know, famous poets and she doesn't or that kind of thing. She runs into Angie again and they they continue their sort of like very uh, antagonistic relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, She tells uh, Jimmy McBride that she can't marry him, but he's he he throughout this whole movie is presented as just like a big idiot. Yeah, he's just like not smart (laughs) like i don't even it's it's a little strange how he's characterized um but so it's sort of like i forgot how it's worded i didn't write down the actual actual wording but it's like he's like not even smart enough to like for that to bother him he's like oh like i didn't you know this woman isn't gonna marry me but like whatever it's weird. The triangle is kind of an afterthought in this movie almost because like Jimmy's character feels like kind of an afterthought. Like right, he's just yeah. this sort of like obstacle in the way of her getting with Foxy grandpa. There's, there's really n- very little dramatic tension as to like, you never really expect her and Jimmy to end up together. Like, and also you yeah. never like, you realize pretty instantly that the Foxy grandpa is the daddy. Yeah. Long legs, yeah. the titular daddy um, long legs. Right. Um, Oh, no, here it is. I did write it down. It says, where there is no sense, there is no feeling. And it's like, Jesus. What do you got against this Jimmy guy? Um, He's too dull. Yeah, so she finds out that uh, that Jarvis is is Daddy Long Legs. And also that he is married and dying. (laughs) Wait, he's married? I didn't notice that. I mean, I wrote that down. I don't remember exactly how that's established, but... um, he certainly wants to be with her too. He asks her yeah. to marry him and all of that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, eventually ha- she just agrees. <laughs> yeah, it, it ends on this kind of very kind of like bittersweet note. Um, I didn't particularly love the ending, but yeah, I did. I do at least like how the movie acknowledges that it's like they they don't really they're not very compatible as people. <laughs> like they have a lot like they have a lot of affection for each other, but they are they are at such different ages and like places in life that it's like not, not going to really work out well. Um, even though Um, it tries to sort of like put a happy button on it at the end. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe like at this time, uh, that age gap was like, it was like a little odd, but it wasn't like, Whoa. Yeah. It wasn't nearly as sort of, uh, alarming as it is now. Yeah. Um, for sure. And yeah, there's there's a lot of things in this that are like it's like uh, olden times. Here we yeah. go. But like you said, it's it's I laughed a lot at this. I yeah, thought it was very funny. It's, it's quite it's very funny, and I I I enjoyed it even if there are some like weirdnesses. Um, yeah. One kind of interesting note. Uh, this is based on a book, and in the book, uh, Jarvis is like a socialist, and that is why he. Uh, is so like benevolent mm. um and uh i guess the book is like mostly or entirely told in uh like the letters that she sends to uh daddy long legs um so she's mm-hmm. describing seeing 
Jarvis um, to himself. Uh, but she says, uh, he's a socialist, except, thank heaven, he doesn't let his hair grow and wear red ties. <laughs> um, <laughs> the two signs of a socialist. Yeah. He throws away his money on every sort of crazy reform instead of spending it on such sensible things as yachts and automobiles and polo ponies. <laughs> so sensible. Um, uh, and then she says, you know, I think I'll be a socialist too. You wouldn't mind, would you, Daddy? They're quite different from anarchists. They don't believe in blowing people up. <laughs> <laughs> Probably I am one by rights. I belong to the proletariat. I haven't determined yet just which kind I'm going to be. I will look into the subject over Sunday and declare my principles in my next. <laughs> wow, topical. Yeah. Uh, Not a lot of it in the movie. I actually don't think any of that made it in. No, there's no socialist angle yeah. in there. That's too uh, bad. There's one little shorter thing. It's, it's a, a letter that she sent to him on the 26th of December. And then she says... My dear, dear daddy, haven't you any sense? Don't you know that you mustn't give one girl 17 Christmas presents? I'm a socialist. Please remember. Don't you want, don't you, do you wish to turn me into a plutocrat? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I just control F for the word socialist just to see what would, what funny stuff would come up, you know? (laughs) It worked. Yeah. Well, speaking of can i segue socialism into just europe (laughs) since our next two movies are both from europe speaking of uh of the continent that Karl marx is from (laughs) perfect couldn't have done it better myself that leaves us open for like actual germany or france depending on where you want to go with it indeed indeed let's talk about france let's talk about uh, the 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 old film called J'accuse. J'accuse. Great title. Uh, but a title that confused me. <laughs> a title that very much confused me because I thought until I watched this that this was a movie about the Dreyfus affair, and mm. it is very much not. No. Uh, it and is, it took me more, a little. It is about accusations mostly. Yeah. I it like it. I was very confused. I was thinking, like, okay, you know, this is three hours long. Uh, maybe they're introducing these side characters as, like, a point of view kind of thing. There is some, like, weirdly conspicuous Jewishness stuff going on in this movie. Uh, and and so I thought, like, okay, it's about the Dreyfus affair. We just haven't gotten to mm. him yet. And, yeah, eventually there was a calendar that said 1914. I was like, I guess not. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing to do with that whole story. Yeah. Um it's a it's a World War 1 drama. Another love triangle as well. Indeed. That is uh actually a very would have been a very good uh segue that we did not use. Ah, yes it would have. Well, this film is directed by uh Abel Gans. I think I'm saying that correctly. Nice. I was going to say Abel Gans. Yeah, what anglicized it, whatever. Abel Gans um who will go on to direct uh some other important french silent films um this is not his first film i don't think but this is the first one we're covering on here um no. i will say right off the bat i was intrigued and impressed by this movie because the the very title card saying j'accuse is a bunch of actual soldiers standing out in a field like spelling for- out the word forming the letters j'accuse 
With the apostrophe. Yeah. Which is very cool. This whole movie, I was very impressed by. Uh, it does a thing that I think a lot of silent movies from this time period does that movies don't really do anymore, where, like, it'll introduce, like, the director and the cast with their name and then also kind of a little, like, a moving portrait of them almost. Like a little yeah. clip. Not a clip it's from the kinda... actual movie, but, like, a little close-up of them, like, looking around or, like, saying something. It's kind of nice, but I do not have the short-term memory for when they do that. Like, I, mm. that, I just instantly forget everything that that this is supposed to introduce you to the characters but i need the movie to introduce me to the characters i need context it's a nice thing it's a nice it's a nice little touch but it means nothing to me (laughs) that might be a reason why they don't do anymore because it's like yeah maybe introduce them to the movie um yeah whole lot of accusing happening especially in the early sections of this i mean especially in the later sections of this there's like um just all throughout really i was like having a bit of a hard time like wrapping my head around like what they were trying to do with the word j'accuse in this movie Mm. there's a couple things that they're trying to do with it and that kind of like solidify into one thing toward the end of the movie it's definitely like the main one of the main themes here is like accusing people and like through that implicitly like um i don't know kind of ju- like judging people for their misdeeds maybe mm-hmm. yeah uh which is uh ridiculous because one of the toughest things that i my, my toughest problems that i had watching this movie is that there is a character who they just don't judge for his misdeeds <laughs> and you just go along with him being a terrible person and you're supposed to be okay with that um yeah this uh this movie is very it's a very angry movie which yeah i do feel like comes across in it like so the director uh abogans uh was sort of worked at as a documentary filmmaker on the front uh during world war one this movie was shot i think mostly in 1918 you know while they were still fighting in france he was sent back, I think, possibly from an injury. I don't... I should, re- he was I should sick. research that. Yes. I think you're correct. But so then he was not a fan of the war and decided to make this movie about it. And this movie is, is very staunchly, I think, anti-war. I don't I don't think so. No? I, I, you know, I think that he is not a fan of the death involved in war. But this movie almost feels like pro-war to me, like jingoistic. Um, it is weird. It is weirdly kind of, uh, yeah, kind of like nationalistic or jingoistic, while mm-hmm. also being like, war is ter- like death is terrible. Look at the awful destruction we have wrought, kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, I mean. Uh, I feel like I might have liked this movie less than you. I I feel like it's um, it's confused messaging and theming uh really get in the way of it like coming together as a movie. I think there's a lot of really impressive stuff in this movie. I, there are a lot of really great moments, and I just don't know how well it all like comes together. But mm. we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's sort of the main plot of it is there's like the. Th- I guess three leads, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, so the three main characters are Francois, um, who is violent piece of shit guy, uh, who it 
abuses his wife, uh, and his wife is Edith, who is unrelated to that abuse because this guy is just awful. Um, Edith is in love with uh, the poet who's kind of the main character, mm-hmm. uh, Jean, Jean Diaz. Um, and uh, so they are the three principal characters, and it's sort of a love triangle between the three of them. And, yeah, the movie begins in France pre-war, and they're all just kind of out living on the countryside, and it's it's mostly just about this sort of blood triangle. Edith will go out and meet Jean in the by the by the stream, and then we see Francois just strolling by with his gun. Um, he's got like a whole room full of guns in this movie. Um, there is a very cool shot when he like sees them together from far away, and it, he mm. po- he points his rifle at them, and there's a rack focus from uh, from them standing to the to the barrel of the rifle that he's holding. Um, which is not something that I often see in movies this early, I feel mm. like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, there's that's definitely that like, me. there's definitely a lot of really stylish stuff going on with the cinematography in this movie. Um, there are a lot of like uh, close up objects or characters that are almost mm-hmm. like in these black voids um, so that you can just focus on the thing itself. Uh, which is cool. It's almost like this, like slipping from reality in a little in in a way to just like like pay attention to this thing. Look at this, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think that's cool. There's also a lot of like really showy, neat shots in here as well. Yeah. A lot, a lot stuff. more of those like uh, sort of um, unusual framing, mm-hmm. like like building the frame out of different shapes that aren't just a square or rectangle. Yes. Um, that's pretty interesting to see. So, so basically, like, you know, there's this kind of dynamic that's established between the three of them, and uh, Francois is kind of feeling like, you know, the two of them are married, there's no chance, and his, his mom tells him this as well. He lives with his mom, and he is trying to become a poet, or he is a poet, um, and he's writing a book. Uh, his mom loves his poetry, and he reads to her... Um, as she falls asleep, uh, his Ode to the Sun, uh, which I feel like is a bit of a cliche thing to write about, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought something that I thought was really interesting is, you know, there's this scene where he is reading the poem to his mother. And uh, there have been other movies that we've seen where a poem has been either depicted or read or something like that on screen. And it will usually just show the text in the title card. But rather than doing that in this movie, um, it's showing like this kind of beautiful nature scenery and like and like spring fairies and stuff that uh, he's talking about in his poem. And so it is visually communicating what he is speaking of, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool. It's a tone poem. <laughs> it's all very sweet. His mother, the, the the conspicuous Jewishness that I was talking about is that like uh, Francois is like drinking out of a big mug that has the Star of David on it. I don't know uh, if I even caught that. I uh, I I rented it from Flickr Alley, and they oh. have the the high definition, very very uh, very nice. 
see. <laughs> Very I see. nice addition. Uh, but um, does that ever does that ever come up elsewhere in the movie? No, movies? there's. Weird. I mean, I mean, you see the mug a couple more times, but like yeah. the, there doesn't seem to be any kind of commentary on any of this stuff, which is what I was searching for when I was still thinking right. that this was a movie that had to do with anti-Semitism right. in turn of the century France. <laughs> but so I was like, oh, they're making the like the bad guy conspicuously Jewish, weird. But then like also like Jean Diaz is uh, also Jewish because his mother keeps a menorah out all year (laughs) Hmm. um so i don't know what's going on with that i guess they're just incidentally jewish which you're allowed to be uh it it just seems like some strange details especially the mug i don't really know what's going on there (laughs) um anyway uh war were declared and you know unlike a normal response when war is happening in your country everybody like throws a parade because they're so excited to go to war yeah they're so excited to like defend the glory of France, which I I get the impression a lot of countries felt that way at the beginning of World War One. I. I was like, ah, oh, grand adventure. We're all gonna go to war. This is gonna be a this is gonna be great. Like, you know, it's 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 odd because like you know when you think about World War One in relation to World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. Like World War Two was about you know. D- varying amounts of like understanding of what was happening like with regard to the holocaust at the time Mm -hmm. but like what they did know was that it was like a country that was being racist and invading other countries and they wanted to stop that right where world war one at least to my understanding is just like a bunch of like treaty nonsense you know it's like one assassination sparked a bunch of like interlocking treaties that just meant that like everybody had to go to war because of people who were allies and not allies you know and like so it all felt extremely pointless you know Mm -hmm. uh and so i guess the only thing that you can be excited for is nationalism if you're deciding to die over like the sanctity of france's treaty with italy or something like that you know yeah but like even like even beyond sort of all of the sort of uh you know cultural depictions of world war one that i've seen which is my main sort of source of knowledge about it the the peter jackson documentary gets into that a little bit and that has actual recorded interviews from veterans that were recorded i think in the 1950s or 60s um we yeah, had they were just like let's let's all let's all go this is this will be like a great couple of weeks um that's how i felt at the beginning of covid like ah it's a nice little vacation (laughs) um there is a i think it's before this happens there's something that i uh another joke that i wrote down that i want to point out um uh, joke time yeah everybody prepare for a joke (laughs) so uh not francois who's the other guy uh um jean Jean. So Jean is writing love letters to Edith. And he uses the formal vu in his love letter. What kind of weirdo does that? I don't know. Is it like maybe like a form of respect? I don't know how French works. Yeah, I guess I don't either. Anyway, that's the only joke I had. Continuing. Francois is uh, drafted in into the military and... He sends a little boy to go and find out if Jean is also drafted and uh, because he's like extremely jealous and he finds out that Jean is, but he is going to depart a month later and he's like, oh God, oh no, like my, my lady, 
my lady's gonna get poached by Jean Diaz, you know? Um, <laughs> the poet. The poet. Uh, and so he sends Edith, uh, who they both love, sends her off to, um, uh, sends her off to like live with his parents, I think, in like another village. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, you know, job done, good. He goes off to war. Uh, and then pretty soon after he leaves, uh, Jean, both of them find out that um, she was in an area where the Prussians, would it be at this time? Germans, proto-Germans, had invaded and she was captured uh, and had went missing. And Jean realizes that there is no point in staying at this point because he kind of did want to get with Edith. Uh, <laughs> and so he just like... Um, joins himself maybe hoping to find her in some way but he doesn't really actively do that and they end up in the same company he jean ends up being francois's superior and there's this whole kind of power dynamic thing going on francois doesn't want to follow orders from some rascally poet that's been (laughs) macking on his wife there's all this kind of stuff going on with with jean not wanting to follow orders and all that and Eventually, there's like a dangerous mission that uh, a superior of both of them assigns. Why Francois? I, it's like the second most like French name I can think of, but I can't I yeah. can't remember it uh, after Pierre, of course. But um, <laughs> there's a very an especially dangerous mission that they want to send Francois on, and Jean decides kind of to like gain francois's respect to do the mission instead which i thought could easily backfire because he gets all the glory but uh, francois doesn't matter or doesn't care uh and they kind of become friends and they respect each other um including like become like learning to respect that they both individually love edith uh the same but one of them happens to be married to her and they end up being okay with that um They, they form a sort of begrudging respect respect and friendship for each other mm-hmm. through the this sort of trauma of being in a trench in World War One. Yeah. Jean starts collapsing at points, and he is um, sent home. And then while he is home for a while... Uh, it ter- like Edith reappears and it uh, and the- she reappears with a child. <gasps> Sacre bleu. Um, Mon Dieu. This child uh, is kind of like a tricky thing because they know, even though they have respect in their buds now, Jean knows that Francois, um, <laughs> Jean knows that Francois is a like extremely violent bad dude. Uh, and he's like, hey, like, what's going on with this kid? And it turns out that, like, you know, she was raped by German soldiers. Um, There are some very kind of, like, stunning uh, shots as far as, like, the shadows um, of, like, the the behelmeted soldiers kind of converging around her. They don't show anything, but it's, you know... Yeah, it's done done as artfully as one would expect that sort of scene to be handled in a silent movie. Right. And so this is like a, you know, half German, half French daughter, which is kind of like what was going on in that uh, Mary Pickford, Cecil B. DeMille movie. Right. Yeah. I will say, as soon as this kid 
the kid's name is Angel, which is a very on-the-nose name for a child. <laughs> but as soon as they show up, I'm just like, if anything happens to this kid in this movie, I'm going to flip a table. This kid immediately shows up and is like the most adorable child anyone has ever seen. She is very adorable. And it's like, if they... Because this movie's already established that it's like, it's not afraid for like awful things to happen to its characters. And I'm like, if this kid gets like blown up by a bomb or something, I'm going to be upset. Uh, that <laughs> Which is happen. the point. Yes. Yes, it's just that she gets threatened to be murdered by her Repeatedly, dad. yes. Yeah. And there's one there's one scene later on which I thought was actually really sad, which was like I guess the other kids in town like found out that, you know, her dad's a German or whatever, and they are like playing these like horrific games with her where uh, they put like one other kid like in a blindfold and put him up against a wall, and then they put like a like a German military helmet with like the pointy thing on her and then have her like shoot a BB gun at him. And like, she like breaks down crying. She doesn't want to shoot this kid. She's like three. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. And it's a very upsetting scene. It, it really <laughs> is. Yeah. And yeah. So, so then Jean knows all this and he's like, can't let Francois find out because he will murder this, this three year old child. Because he he is he would feel shamed by it, or some dumb reason like yeah. that. Yeah. But of course, and so then there's this sort of like there's a section of the movie where they're kind of like trying to hide it. They're both back from the front, and they're sort of trying to pass off this child as like someone else's kid. Uh, and there's all these things where it's like, hey, how come, like, how come you're you're all being friendly with this kid now it's like oh it's my like my niece or whatever like there's all these sort of charades that they're trying to 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 do yeah to like keep the wool over his eyes and he's getting more and more suspicious um until he does find out and it's very unhappy and it's like i i'm going back to the right isn't that's the point where he's like i'm going back to the front to like reclaim my honor or some yeah some shit. blow off steam so that i don't murder a three-year-old <laughs> exactly this is i think the section of the movie that i i like the least when it's like basically all the men in the movie including i think it's edith's father yeah they basically they all like immediately return to the front to be like ah, oh, we are so we are so shamed by this that we have to like av- avenge your honor or some like we we hate this adorable child so yeah. much <laughs> and it's like what I, I i can't really tell if it's like i think it is i think the movie is is somewhat critical of that kind of mindset but at least yeah but in in the moment it's sort of like of course they would do these things and it's like i don't know this is like very maybe that's i just the thing. i don't like... understand the old timey mindset as well as i could but this is really like a lot of my problem with this movie is that, you know, and especially as we'll talk about in a second, like it's making these accusations of like people's character, right? Jaccusations, as it were. Some, <laughs> it's making these jaccusations. Uh, and this movie insists on seeing Francois as this like respectable good guy. And I think that there's a way that you can take that that's, like, complex, right? Maybe, mm-hmm. like, um, like 
he has bad aspects, but there's still good aspects to him. That's what the movie's um, going for, I think. I don't really think it pulls it off. I think he's no. far too awful throughout. Even when he's kind of, when it's trying to kind of portray him as a more honorable or good person, he still yeah. kind of comes across as this, like, very stuck-up asshole character. Yeah. You can have a character be complex and bad and good, you know? But, like, what are they doing with his badness, right? Like, what's the point of what they're doing? I I don't see it, you know? It just seems like it's the drama that you have, that you have, like, an abusive dad, like, in... Right. It, like, in Broken Blossoms, you know? Um, I think it, and, it almost gets at a thing of how, like bruised pride is like a dangerous thing and how that is like a destructive quality in a person but i don't really think it it's hard to tell even if the movie is actually like condemning that or if it's supporting it a little bit more right well so let's get ahead to the part of the movie the to the end of the movie which i think like i thought was initially interesting and cool and then as it played out i thought that it was kind of like invalidating anything like complex about what was going on Mm. um which is they both return to the front uh they respect each other again um and uh basically like simultaneously francois dies and jean goes mad and they send him back home again. Uh, and it's a little unclear as he arrives that, that he's mad. And it's this kind of like dram- melodramatic realizing that Edith has. She's like, oh, my God, like, my guy, he's great. He was taking care of the kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turns out that he's just like r- rambling and raving about things. He goes around town and uh, puts slips of paper by everyone's doors saying like come to edith's house at 10 p.m uh and i'm going to tell you about your dead relatives and (laughs) he does yeah so they all show up who wouldn't want to who wouldn't want to do that they all show up she's like why are all these people at my house uh they all show up and then he says like basically i have seen your dead relatives i've seen like the things that the things that you did to them I accuse you. I accuse you of being uh, like bad people who are not respecting the military and your like and your soldiers who are fighting for your nation. Here's how: like you know, your husband is off fighting and you're canoodling with other men. Your your father entrusted his business to you and uh, you're running it unscrupulously like all this stuff you know basically him saying like you need to show like the what the men who are fighting are doing is good and you need to show like reverence and deference to them um and if you don't my zombie army will get you (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, so the the there is a sort of zombie more of a ghost army i would say (laughs) <laughs> i mean yeah it's like the, there's a, a very cool shot of uh yeah a field of crosses which then kind of does and like yeah dark that is clouds. a really it's cool sort shot of a, sort of a double exposure like matte shot with like dark clouds behind it mm-hmm. and then there's a uh a sort of uh like a fade effect where the crosses fade into the the corpses of all the soldiers and they all yeah rise and start walking back towards the village 
and they'll walk into the village and you know look through the windows all spooky at the people in the houses and they're all like ah papa ah you know my husband my son and they're all you know looking in all spooky yeah and like specifically they like attack the the people that he's accused in his speech um and they see them and they run away and like you know they have characters questioning like are we just like all having some mass delusion right now like this 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 madman came in and told us that like a ghost zombie army is going to (laughs) attack us he says they won't attack you if you were properly respectful you know the dead Uh, speak yeah (laughs) um and and like who who is edith respecting right who does edith respect that's the question and like what she is supposed to respect is her awful husband right like he to me was doing this because he felt guilty about being in love with another with a man who he respected's wife mm. um and so he felt like he was accusing himself or at least like offsetting mm-hmm. it on other people um and saying like everybody who is disrespecting the soldiers you're bad you know and uh that includes your awful, awful husband, you know? <laughs> so anyway, the zombies attack some people. It's not really I mean, explained. It's like... not really like a zombie attack. Like that is, I think <laughs> setting, if you watch this movie, I think that's setting up to maybe some false expectations. I don't know. They look like they hold their hands in front of them. They almost do. like zombies. No, but I mean, it's they... not like, I don't know. It's not like a full on, like they're not like attacking the village as so much as they're sort of like no. scaring them a little bit. Yeah. Um, after this, Jean goes back to uh, his house where he finds the the poem that he wrote about the sun, and he accuses the sun. Um, for he's just pointing those cues everywhere. Yeah, for sort of I guess for not doing more to stop the war. He 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 basically accuses the sun in a in a in a similar manner to the way he's accused the whole village of like you're you know you're doing it wrong and then he rips up his poetry book um and it says the soldier in him had killed the poet hmm. uh which is uh, that was good is uh, yeah it's short it's sweet it's not as overwritten as a dw griffith uh <laughs> title card um and that's the end pretty much well yeah he dies yeah, and then, yeah. oh yes and then he dies uh because <laughs> because he went mad and died i do think i like this movie more than you i don't really think I didn't really get as much of a sort of like respect the troops thing from the ending so much as a sort of like people turning, like turning a blind eye to the, the suffering that was happening at the front. I definitely, I think I got more of an anti-war sort of message as it were from this movie. Yeah. Um, It's hard to say which is, which one was more kind of intentional in sort of reading about the movie. I kind of get the sense that, it was intended as a, like uh, an indictment of of World War One, but then even that it it does have it definitely does have this very kind of you know, like jingoistic or kind of nationalistic bent to it, and yeah the the kind of the morals of it are a little bit janky, a little bit confused I think yeah yeah I yeah there's a lot of cool stuff in this movie technically um, and... it's like incredible I think. From a yes. technical perspective, this is, like, one of the best things that we've watched. 
It's very yes, it's very like like structurally sound, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Um and and adventurous as well. Yeah. It uses a lot of cool visuals in ways that it, it feels sort of for the time anyway, a, a little bit experimental in sort of how it's mm-hmm. approaching things visually. Yeah. Dark movie. Yes. Very like, heavy. Holy mackerel is this movie dark. I will say, some of the editing, very choppy. Not my favorite. Hmm. I found a lot of the editing to be very, uh, yeah, just sort of uh, choppy. Like, it would it would cut the things and cut away very quickly. Huh. Like, it, it hadn't quite figured out the timing of, like, how you can, like, do cutaways. Speaking of choppy, there was one. There was one kind of moment where I like my my feeling about it. It like swung back and forth very quickly, which was um, there was like a camera on a dolly that was following uh, Jean as he's like walking or running like down a path, like he's mm-hmm. coming back home. He's seeing home again, and so there's a camera that's like following behind him. So he's like locked in the center of the frame and it's going like around the corner of a path. So it's like a very smooth motion around the corner on this dolly track. Um, And so the background is changing in front of him as he walks forward, runs forward and he's center in the frame. And then I'm like, Oh man, this is a really cool shot. Oh my God. You know? And then he stops and then like the dolly kind of, starts swinging around him and coming to the side of him and the camera's just like eh, eh, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like like all of the smooth niceness was like ruined by this like extremely herky-jerky camera movement um and it, like it's supposed to be this grand sweeping moment he's seeing his town again and then it's eh, 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 sideways yeah. and then it like it like tilts up and like he looks at the the hill above his above his town. Yeah, like turning the camera up. I was like, oh my god, you 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 did all of this and then you ruined it. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, kind of a microcosm of like the whole movie almost. Like it's it comes yeah. so close to being this like incredible thing, and it there's a couple things that really kind of sour it, especially towards the end. Yeah, but it does make me interested in seeing what he does next. Yeah. Um, some, some interesting behind the scenes stuff from this movie. So while they were filming it, the war was still happening and, uh, Abelgans returned to the front, uh, as part of the, the sort of, uh, like filmmakers battalion. I forget what it's called. But so a, a lot of the, the battle stuff is shot on location during an actual battle of World War One, which is insane. Yeah. And the, the sort of zombie ghost army at the end were mostly played by real soldiers who were on leave from coming back from the front. And they were returning from the Battle of Verdun, which is like one of the one of the bad ones. Like one of the ones that's just like everyone died. And yeah, like a, a lot of the people who played the ghosts died like weeks after that was shot. It's, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like they're playing ghosts in this movie. And they it's were heavy. actually dead, like, weeks. Like, yeah, it's it's insane. Um, I feel like that, that sense of, like, like despair is very, I think, comes through in this movie. It's a very sort of, like, despairing, sort of, like, yeah. angry movie. It's, it's, it's harsh vibes through the whole yes. film. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't hate it. I just had intensely mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like I don't I don't really disagree with anything that that you said about it. 
a movie that I don't have intensely uh, mixed feelings about. <laughs> this is good. We're ending uh, which on, a, is on, from a, the, on a, a much lighter note now. I feel like this is a good one to end on. Yes. Uh, and from the other side of, of World War One, yeah, true, is is the doll, which is a movie about a man who is so powerfully gay that he <laughs> uh, that he has to. F- pretend to marry a sex robot <laughs> yeah pretty much like no lies were spoken just now <laughs> um uh this movie is so good and it's so funny and i love it <laughs> yeah uh well this is yeah this is a german movie directed by ernst lubitsch uh who directed i don't want to be a man more gender gendery kind of stuff going on yeah um i think i'm like this one more just because of how wackadoo is yeah it's it's very zany and it's also very tight yes uh, which which i appreciate it's also after like watching it's, um it's like a fairy tale. it's very heightened yeah in its mm-hmm. in its uh its world its storytelling all of it yeah it feels like it could have been done like it could have been set at any time you know like yeah. and because they're talking about like dowries and Mm-hmm. princesses and whatever you know um but even though, like a lot of the sets and the props are sort of intentionally very stagey and very fake yeah i love that i love that aspect of it like there's a horse that's clearly like a Two guy people in a, in horse a horse costume, costume. <laughs> and and then like like you know it's pretending to be a horse the whole time and you're just kind of playing along and then somebody asks the horse a question and the horse just talks <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that's kind of the i think like this movie wouldn't really work without that intentional kind of artifice and like heightened reality because Mm -hmm. it it's it 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 asks i think the audience to go along with a lot of uh uh, absurdity yeah i was thinking while i was watching this how well it would work like with sound in like modern era and i feel like it could work there's like a lot there's like you could throw in some like commentary about like objectification which i feel like it doesn't necessarily touch on um Mm -hmm. but it's like there for the picking um uh but it's it's just so fun it's fun i think based on these two movies that we've watched i think ernst lubitsch is very good at injecting his stories with a lot of ideas without explicitly making the movies about them kind of Hmm. like Mm -hmm. they function as these very tight like comedies entertaining comedies zany entertaining comedies but there's definitely a lot going on in them that isn't necessarily text i guess or it isn't like lampshaded or sort of overly dramatically like stated in intertitles right like for example the you know it's not explicitly stated that this guy is gay but he clearly is you yes, know yeah a hundred percent or at least i mean he does sort of end up with a lady at the end um, i i think that's just because it had to in the story right well it's know? it also much like i don't want to be a man i feel like it it has all of that in it, and then at the end, it sort of ends in this very sort of standard, like, status quo. Kind of hetero Somewhat way. normative, yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, which, who knows if that was, like, uh, like, a mandate. Like, he felt like he couldn't he couldn't go off the rails too much. Um, <laughs> or if it was just like, ah, it's a nice story. To get into a little bit more plottiness of it is about uh, a baron, the king of town, as it were. <laughs> wants his nephew named Lancelot to get married, but Lancelot is uh not exactly a ladies man. 
He is actively yeah. frightened of, of women. Yes. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. He offers and makes it publicly known that he's like offering a three th- uh, 300,000 franc dowry for uh, his nephew. Uh, so there's like 40 women who are all clamoring after him to mm-hmm. become his new wife. And he is, he hates that they are anywhere near him <laughs> and, and runs away yeah. to Flees a town. monastery. Yeah. yeah. He flees town to a monastery full of men. Yeah. A bunch of friar types who uh, do nothing but eat all day. Yeah. Um, and they're running out of money because they've spent it all on food. Um, and so then Lancelot is staying with them and they find out about this dowry money. And they're like, think of all the pork knuckles we can buy with that money. Yeah. As stated in the intro, in the intertitles. They come up to him with, with this plan of, oh, you'll we know this doll maker, see? And you can marry a doll and get the money. Yeah. And then you can give the money to us <laughs> because we're your friends, see? We, and we want to buy chicken with it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, this is a very sh- funny shot while they're like asking him this where it cuts to all the friars like twiddling their thumbs waiting for him to answer <laughs> there's also a very funny shot where like one of the friars is kind of like thinking about something and he's just like kind of rubbing his forehead like thinking and he's like he says join me in my worries and then like a dozen people <laughs> come up and then they all they all rub his head yeah. with him <laughs> There's a lot of silliness in this movie. This movie is very silly. Great example. They go to meet the doll maker, whose name is Hilarious. It's not a funny name. His name yeah. is the word Hilarious. And he like he he is named and looks like a Melies inventor, which I love. Yes, he looks like John C. Riley dressed as Salvador Dali. <laughs> is that one of your pre-written jokes? Yes, yes it was. <laughs> I slipped that one in there with that... Uh, saying it though and he's made this this you know very state-of-the-art doll basically just a robot an android yes a gynoid uh true not the first in film but a a good early example uh and he's he's built it in the in the image of his own daughter aussie as played by aussie oswalda who was also and he's got a bunch of these yeah he's got an army of them all different ladies, but th- he's making one right now that he's modeling off of his daughter. Yeah. A, a sex robot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. And w- without it being explicitly stated, yeah, that's that's sort of the... Okay, but his business card says that they are for bachelors, widowers, and misogynists. Yes. Uh, there you go. So... <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> but so he's he's all set to to sell this... this uh, this robot to to Lancelot, but then his his creepy boy assistant is dancing with the robot and breaks it, and so the real Aussie pretends to be the doll while the, it's like the transaction is being made, and thus the setup for hijinks. Yeah. She has hijinks to pretend to be ensue. the doll. Yeah. Another another thing about you know uh, Lancelot is. You know, he offers him all of the robots that he already has, like, fully finished. And they, like, they, like, kick their feet in the air in a synchronized dance. And he sees, like, under their skirts a little bit. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I don't want any of this. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, the like apprentice, he is like yeah, like basically like a the weirdest, boy. the weirdest character. <laughs> He's so strange. Uh, Cause he like like when he brings Lancelot in, he says like, "Come on in, young man." You know. Yeah, and uh, he's and twelve. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he's always like threatening suicide. Yeah, uh, he every single time he makes the slightest mistake, which he's he's very often breaking things, causing problems, uh, just being a real rascal. And every single yeah. time he gets like caught in a, a an act of rascalry, he's like, "Oh, woe is me." Uh, and then he like, he's like I guess I guess drink. it's over. I'll yeah. drink paint now. <laughs> I'll drink paint or like yeah, he's he's always or like jump out a window, whatever. He's always sort of like dejectedly trying to kind of off himself. Um it's, it's such a weird character thing, but yeah. I, I love it. It's so funny. I do not understand what was going on with that character, but but very entertaining. Yeah, he literally says goodbye, cruel world, and then is about yes. to drink some paint. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that that other that other moment that's later in the movie where he uh, jumps out the window is the funniest thing in the movie though, uh, because he he's like, all right, that's it, I'm jumping out the window, like it's it's uh it's over for me, and like he like the the people are like, oh god, oh god, you know, he he jumps out the window, and then it cuts to the outside. And it is on the ground floor, and <laughs> and he doesn't even react. He's just like, hmm. and then he walks yeah. away. <laughs> classic, classic gag, so well implemented here. It's yeah, it's like, it's hilarious. It's yeah. so good. I feel like a lot of the rest of the plot is like pretty boilerplate. It's like what you'd expect the rest of the plot of this movie to be. It's like yeah. there's a wedding and things are really awkward, and like. Like yeah, and like the, she can't keep up the ruse all the time, right? Like yeah. the the Baron meets her and she's like all acting like a robot, um, and he's trying to pass it off as like oh she's from a very formal family, and then it's like people are offering her food at the wedding and he's like oh no she doesn't need to eat, and so she's trying to like steal food from his plate, without him seeing so that she won't know that he's that she's not a robot. There's so many jokes in this movie are the sort of like. She's trying to do a thing, and someone will look, and she has to, like, stand yeah. still. <laughs> there is, like, just boatloads of, of that joke happening in this. In, in a good way. Like, it's it's always funny. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets the, the dowry money and returns to the, <laughs> the monastery. And he's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't need this doll anymore. And I'm like, oh, th- throw her in the, in the junk room. I think is what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she starts dancing, and they're like, "Well, we like dancing, so I guess we'll keep her around." Doing right, the- but also like, yeah, like the, there's this whole dynamic of it's like you're not supposed to look at ladies. Don't do this. Yeah, you know. Yeah. She does the 1919 version of the robot, <laughs> and then they go back. You know, she she goes back to his room, uh, and eventually, after they're married, after he thought he married a robot. It turns out that he married a real lady officially. Yeah. And he's like, wait, that's great. I like you for some reason now. Well, it's like at that point, he, I feel like. He's not threatened anymore. Right. It's like he doesn't feel the pressure or whatever. So it's like he's already kind of gotten to know her a little bit while thinking that she's a robot. And so when he finds out that she's a human, he's like, oh, okay, I'm actually cool with you hanging around now. Yeah. It's very, it's very saucy. Much like the last Ernst Lubitsch movie we watched. 
I'm digging these Lubitsch movies. They're yes, they're a too. lot of fun. Um, a lot of really great, like silent movie comedy acting in this, mm-hmm. especially from Ossie Oswalda. She does a thing so much in this movie that is very funny. That is, she's very good at, which is like stifling laughter. I'm laughing, but I'm trying not to show it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of scenes where it's like Lancelot will like put like a like a hat on her, like a coat in her arm or something like that, being like, oh robots is gonna hold this and she'll like throw it back at him and then like go back to standing still mm-hmm. Fa- and she's facing away from him so he can't really see her face and she's like trying not to laugh <laughs> yeah it's like good good comedy staging things like the jumping out the window gag it's just like such like simple great visual comedy stuff yeah there's a, a this movie also has a lot of the like diagonal like frames or like circle frames mm-hmm. um there's like a cross frame i think at one point there's a uh moon that winks a like very like hastily drawn moon yeah that kind of like looks disapproving <laughs> and then like she kind of like leans on him in a, in a way that's uh romantic or whatever and the moon's like yeah nice job <laughs> <laughs> which is if you i think that kind of sums up the vibe of this movie a lot yeah um i mean there's a lot of like staginess but it doesn't really feel like it feels distinct from a lot of the staginess that we've seen from other early silent movies it's intentional but even like i don't know i think like melier's movies have like moons with faces and like very obviously like stagey sets Mm -hmm. but this i can't even necessarily put a finger on why it feels so different but it does it feels very distinct from those well, because, yeah, those are in this kind of, like, fairy tale reality. This is, like, a fairy tale. But those are in, like, you know, like, painterly fairy tale realities. Where this one is, like, mostly a regular movie with just some, like, strange details in the background. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is even better, honestly. Because, like, I-, I love just, like, the kind of subtle, I don't know, unexpected weirdness, maybe. Like yeah. those horses. Yeah. Look at those horses. <laughs> what uh, was your favorite movie? I mean, I think in the moment, I, I feel like after watching J'Accuse, I thought it was J'Accuse. But maybe just in talking about it, I might have... I think that and the doll were kind of neck and neck. I was very, very impressed with just the technical aspects of J'Accuse. Mm-hmm. Now that it's on me, I'm like, I think the doll might be the, the best. Of yeah, the me too. I, 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 I thought this all was fantastic. Like, also, if you were to ask me which one I wanted to watch again right now, 100% it would be the doll. So mm-hmm. Also because it's, like, less than half the length, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that also helps. It's a taut 65 minutes. Yeah. Full of laughs. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. We, uh you know, have been gone for a while, even though we've just sort of been like distributing episodes every couple months. Uh, yeah. A, every couple months, one year, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the new title. <laughs> but uh, we're going to, I I am on board with getting back on with this. Uh, and the next I mean, two episodes. Yeah. What? I was going to say. Are you doubting me? <laughs> no, no. I was just saying we've finished out the 1910s. We've made it through the 1910s, which means that our next episode is going to be our decade in review. But also, we're about to start the 1920s, which is like the heyday of silent film. Like, it's where all the famous ones are All the bangers. 
Yeah. It'll be so I'm I'm very excited to like get into those. Like Me too. Me too. That's gonna I'm be excited fun. for like people to stop like figuring out the craft and to like start doing it. You right. Know? Yeah. Which is like kind of I feel like it's like starting to happen, but it's Yeah. Just having seen like clips of some later ones. Like movies mm-hmm. that I haven't seen. I've seen a lot of like late twenties movies. Yeah, I'm very excited for some of the stuff we're we're gonna get get into. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be watching a couple movies about the era uh, for our decade in review. I don't know if we fully figured it out yet, but uh, probably Chaplin, um, maybe Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. um, and throw a doc in there. Throw throw something about World There's... War One in there. Yeah, we could do that. Until then. Uh, I hope that you uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to us on the podcasts. Follow all, us all online. The podcatchers. The podcatchers. Um, We're on all of them. And thanks for continuing to be a listener or Indeed. watcher. Uh, and uh, for coming along with us on this journey through the 1910s, 1980s, 1890s. And coming up the 2020s, the 1920s. in a long time, but well, the 1920s yeah. now. Uh, as I made a mistake, but I saved it. Um, anyway, thanks a lot for listening. And Glenn, I will see you next year. See you next year.